This is KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. It's time for Issues and Ideas, a show that features a wide variety of local voices sharing their thoughts and perspectives. On today's show, NPR's Nell Greenfield Boyce has a new book, and she talks with KCBX's Brian Reynolds. Uniformitarianism, <laughs> it's quite a mouthful, is just the idea that the physical processes that have happened in the universe are constant, and they happen everywhere in the universe, and they have through all time, and they will in the future. Also, the Playing With Food crew learns how to cure local olives at home. And those are the olives that you put in salt only, in a bin or a bucket or you know whatever vessel and they're cured only in rock salt. These stories and more coming up on Issues and Ideas. Good afternoon. It's Monday, January 29th, 2024. I'm Carol Tangeman. The movie Oppenheimer has renewed interest in the top secret cities where research and development was undertaken during World War II to produce the first nuclear weapons. KCBX correspondent Tom Wilmer takes us to Los Alamos, Oak Ridge, and White Sands Manhattan Project sites. I'm correspondent Tom Wilmer. Come along and join the journey to explore the past and present of Oak Ridge, Tennessee, the town that was dubbed Secret City. As more than 75,000 workers settled in Oak Ridge during World War II to develop the nuclear bomb. Oak Ridge was created by the government. No one knew it was even on the map. There wasn't a dot on the map that said Oak Ridge. For four years, nobody knew it was there. We'll then stop in for a visit at Los Alamos Labs. It's probably the best known because it was the site of Project Y of the Manhattan Project. Also formed in total secrecy during World War II to develop the bomb. Both towns continue high-tech research in a myriad of fascinating modalities for the Department of Energy, including environmental issues, 3D printing, and much more. Not far from Los Alamos is White Sands Missile Range, where the first plutonium bomb was detonated at Trinity Site in July 1945. We're located off of Highway 70, about 35 miles to the east of Las Cruces, New Mexico. Katie Jett, the president of the Visitors Bureau in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Oak Ridge, Tennessee is unlike anywhere else in America. It really is. Yes, it's unlike anywhere. It's truly one of the best kept secrets still in the country. When Oak Ridge first started, it was known as the secret city, wasn't it? It was the secret city. When Oak Ridge was created by the government, no one knew it was even on the map. And for Four years, nobody knew it was there. And I was told as many as 45,000 people lived 75,000 people. 75,000 people were moved in within a year of starting the city. So they managed to build a city, housing, apartments, whole infrastructure in months. Yeah, the Army built an entire city, houses, stores, the other things that they had because they were brought in all these young people. They had symphonies, movie theaters here. They had dances out on the tennis courts. They had their own playhouse, all types of different culture because they were bringing all these young people in that were very intelligent. Then you add in the fact that 98% of the people didn't know why they were here. There were only a handful of people that knew 
exactly why they were here. The rest of them were just working to help bring our boys back from the war. Just knew they were doing their part. They were doing their part to help the country. But what they were really doing was? What they were really doing was enriching the uranium that was used in the bombs that we dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. So they only did the formulation and mixing of the chemicals and then they shipped it out west from here, right, for testing. Yeah. Actually, the main thing that they did here was they separated the uranium to only pull out the uranium-235 so that that was then sent to Los Alamos where it was put in the bomb to be used. So one day, people here woke up and the war was over. And then what? You know, the town could have easily died, but it didn't. The town could have very easily gone away, which is actually what they thought it was going to do, which is why a lot of the houses were just supposed to be temporary. The laboratory and the other plants here in town, they started working on other projects for the government. And from that point on, Department of Energy took over and they've been creating unbelievable scientific changes, anything from airbags to 3D printing of cars. Did the base housing go away, or, or are there still people living in World War II houses? We still have a lot of the houses that were originally built. They have been redone. All the asbestos taken out of them. They've all been remodeled. We still have a lot of those, what the Army called them was alphabet houses. So tell us about what happens today in Secret City. Oak Ridge is still one of the places that all of the country's uranium is still housed here. We still have a lot of security and a lot of high science that's going on. The National Lab has the fastest computer so in the world. In the world. Mm. And there's all kinds of different things that are going on out there that most of us don't know about and won't know about until it's, it's time to actually hit the streets. There is still so much of the science going on in this town. The majority of our tourism does have to do around World War II. The history and then what that history has done and is still doing in our country today. Then we have museums that go along with all of the, the history. So if I met you somewhere else and you told me about your town, what would be the first reason you'd tell me to come visit? I would probably tell you to come because of our history. I just feel that Everybody needs to learn from the history. For further information, exploreoakridge.com for all of the information about staying here and about tourism, things that they can do. My name is Katie Jett, and I'm the president of the Visitors Bureau. Thank you so much. No, thank you. And we're glad you're here and come back. I don't want to leave. I'm Tom Wilmer reporting from Tennessee. We'll see you here. Please join us as we visit with Linda Deck, the director of the Bradbury Science Museum at the Los Alamos National Labs. Hi, Linda. Hi, Tom. I'm so glad you found your way here. We are no longer a secret city or a hidden city. We really like people to know about us here in Los Alamos. Here we are at the Bradbury, and this is not mm. the writer of Bradbury, another Bradbury museum. So that usually is the first question. Ray Bradbury? No, not Ray Bradbury. Norris Bradbury, who was a scientist during the Manhattan Project here and became the second director of the laboratory and pretty much shaped what the modern 
laboratory looks like today. Actually, this museum was his idea, and so it's fitting that it's named after him. We're so happy to be the public's window to Los Alamos National Lab. Like I like to say, you know, we're a national nuclear security laboratory, and we can't be a tourist destination. We can't say, y'all come on up and drive around and see what we do. But we do want the public to know the good work that we do and appreciate it, and so that's why the Bradbury's here to tell that story. Let's go back in time, square one, Manhattan Project, and how Manhattan got to be in New Mexico. The Manhattan Project was that project during the war to create a nuclear weapon for our defense. It started in Manhattan, New York. That's why it's called the Manhattan Project. That's where the headquarters was. But there were installations all over the United States, notably Oak Ridge, Tennessee, where uranium work was going on, Hanford, Washington, where the plutonium works were. But this place right here in Los Alamos is probably the best known because it was the site of Project Y of the Manhattan Project that was designated as the place to design and develop the first atomic weapon. Top, top secret. Yes, it, oh, it absolutely was. And, you know, it's fascinating. By the end of the Manhattan Project up here on the Mesa, there were over 3,000 people working here. The word never got out that people were up here and what they were doing. It's just an amazing bit of good wartime patriotism and security to keep that secret. Let's move into today. What's happening at Los Alamos National Labs? You were doing some incredible genomic testing research. and You know, it's really fantastic that we have this system of national laboratories across our country that does basic primary research to forward our understanding of science and then build technologies. Because we've got terrific facilities and terrific capabilities in materials research, in understanding fundamental physical forces, and also our computing capabilities are basically second to none. Well, the second smartest computer in the world right here? We We broke the petaflop barrier with our roadrunner. A petaflop is a million billion calculations a second. As you said, we do climate change modeling here, genomic work here. It's interesting that on one level, where the funding comes from and what the point of the exercise has to do with national security, has to do with bioterrorism and preparedness. So you guys are really a defense agency, and yet the end result, just like a lot of things that came out of the Vietnam War, helped common man, the greater humanity. Tell us about some of the spin-offs of the defense work going on here. Right. You've absolutely hit it on the head. One of my favorite programs that we've got going on here, well, material sciences. We've had a program on superconducting materials here for a long time. So our program to understand those materials, develop new combinations of materials, how do you work with those materials, how do you lay it down in a flawless fashion so that it can be used, we work out those basic kinds of questions, and then we push it out to the public sector so it can be commercialized and you can use those technologies. And those technologies are being used right now in demonstration projects on this continent and across the world. Let's come back to the museum. Mm. You have all these different little tentacle rooms with different things going on. Tell us what somebody would see and experience here. So when you come into the museum, you have your choice where to begin the story. Like a lot of people, I'm a chronological person, so I like to start my visit with the history. And so we have a history gallery that has an extensive treatment 
of what was going on politically and scientifically in the 1930s that pretty much conspired to create a Manhattan Project, that fission had been discovered, and the Germans certainly had that knowledge, and we ought to be working on looking at those materials as well. And so the Manhattan Project was started, and that gallery tells you that entire story from the scientific side of it all the way through what was going on in the entire Manhattan Project, what was going on here at Los Alamos, the people who were involved, and what happened to end the war. Our defense gallery picks up the story, picks it up notably with full-scale models of Fat Man and Little Boy, which were the products of Project Y, and then goes on and shows you other projects that we worked on when we were asked to continue understanding nuclear materials and how they could be used for our defense. And then our job today, which is called stockpile stewardship, looking at our stockpile of nuclear weapons, assessing them without nuclear testing. Remember, there's we've been abiding by a ban for a long time, so there's no critical testing. And then our third gallery looks at basically all those other things that we do in global security, in the bio threat research that we talked about, uh, looking at uh, HIV and anthrax, different kinds of energy strategies that we're looking at and problems that we're solving in wind energy, solar energy, geothermal energy, nuclear energy. And then we have a hands-on room called Tech Lab, where you can try your hand at a lot of different activities that simulate the kinds of things that a scientist must use to approach a problem. Los Alamos intentionally is way off the interstate. You don't just drive through the area. You have to want to come, too. <laughs> Who comes here? I'll tell you what, our visitors are really an international audience. We have over 80,000 visitors a year to the museum, and yes, they do have to find their way up here. That's why it was sighted here back in Manhattan Project days, because people couldn't get up here very easily. Linda, we're out of time, but this has been absolutely awesome. For further information, if somebody wanted to go to your website or contact you. L-A-N-L dot gov slash museum will get you to our website. We'd love to have you visit. Thank you, Linda. You're very welcome, Tom. Thank you. We've been speaking with Linda Deck, the director of the Bradbury Science Museum at Los Alamos National Labs in New Mexico. My name is Lisa Blevins. I'm a public affairs specialist with the White Sands Missile Range Public Affairs Office at White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico. We're now visiting the White Sands Missile Range Museum. I'm Tom Wilmers. Join me for a visit with Public Affairs Officer Lisa Blevins. This is United States Army Headquarters, White Sands Missile Range, New Mexico. A modern missile, symbol of America's power, progress, and hope for the future. Tell us about where you're located for somebody visiting New Mexico and how they would get here, number one. We're located off of Highway 70, about 35 miles to the east of Las Cruces, New Mexico, and perhaps 45 miles to the west of Holloman Air Force Base or Alamogordo, New Mexico. Is this open to the public, access to the base? Is it easy or hard process? Well, the installation itself is not open to the public. However, the museum and our missile park and our V-2 rocket display are all open to the public. All you need to do is present a valid photo ID card for anyone over the age of 16, and they'll let you walk in. And is there a fee for entrance to the museum? Absolutely not. The fee is free. Let's dovetail back in time 
because Trinity site is not too far from here, and White Sands has a relationship with the development of the first nuclear bomb. Actually, I saw Fat Man out in your static display. Trinity Site Open House, we have it open to the public twice a year. It's on the first Saturday in April and the first Saturday in October. The Northern Gate opens at 8 o'clock in the morning and closes at 2, and you can reach that off of Highway 380. We have between two and 3,000 people that come every year. It's a time for folks to go to Ground Zero and see where the blast was actually took place. There's a big crater there, I assume? No, there isn't. Uh, the gadget as they called it was 100 feet off the ground mm -hmm. so it uh, left kind of depression maybe six to eight feet there are still pieces of trinitite there it has been designated as a national historic landmark there are photos along the fence that they can see you know the the world changed from that point when mm -hmm. that explosion took place yeah it changed our world it did it changed the dynamics of the entire world is there nuclear radiation out there is it safe the radiation around ground zero is about 10 times over our background. You actually get far more than that when you fly coast to coast uh, on an aircraft over 30,000 feet. If it weren't safe, we obviously would not open it to the public. Well, very good. What an honor and a pleasure to come out here. Thank you so much. Well, we're pleased to have you here, and we hope that people will come and see. This is where our history came from. If you have any questions, visit our website at wismer.army.com. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Carol Tangeman. Up next, NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce talks about her new book. I am Brian Reynolds. Today we are joined by NPR science correspondent Nell Greenfield-Boyce to talk about her new book, Transit and Strange Notes on the Science of Life. Welcome, Nell. Hey, thank you for having me. Pretty exciting book you've written. I was amazed by its insights and passion for science, but also for the, the humanity around those issues. How did you come to write the book? Well, you know, I've been reporting on science for NPR for about 18 years, and my reporting is pretty straight news coverage a lot of the times and features, but I started writing these kind of much more personal essays um, shortly after I had kids because children are like excellent little scientists. They explore the world and they ask these really probing questions about, you know, big ideas and, and you know, the universe and what it all means. And I found myself um, writing sort of more exploratory, creative essays that took some of the experiences I had with them and from my own childhood and kind of blended them with some of my interests in the history of science and the philosophy of science. So just as an example, the first essay in the collection looks at this uh, phobia my young son developed about tornadoes. And, you know, I was trying to, you know, reassure him about tornadoes and also like learning about tornadoes and hearing about the history of tornado science. And, you know, I called up one of the nation foremost tornado experts to talk to him about, you know, how how he calmed people who worry about tornadoes coming. And so it turned out to be like sort of a, a, a whirlwind of uh, sort of personal reflection and personal experience along with the history of science. And it's just interesting to me how, you know, you can combine these things together and, you know, you get sort of metaphorical insights that you might not have gotten just by, you know, sort of considering one thing separately from the other. Uh, mentioning your children and their, their interest, not only in you as a mom, but uh, as a scientific journalist, pretty fascinating because I think kids have insights, in my own view, uh, into the world that are very deep. 
uh, in, in a little bit spooky sometimes. And I think uh, while those vestiges remain uh, with us uh, over time, they, we forget and we become less childlike and more adult and maybe less inquisitive and more, even more fearful. I think that kids are absolutely fearless in their exploration of the universe. And that's one of the things that I think comes across in this book. I think all the best lines in the book are ones that my kids have, um, for sure. Like, they definitely come across as a million times uh, more more interesting and funnier than I do. And they're quite challenging. And, you know, they, they are not at they haven't reached a stage where they sort of know how to pretend uh, like adults do. And, you know, the, the childish scientist has become kind of a cliche, but it really is true. I mean, they will just investigate things and like ask big questions in a way that I think, you know, many people maybe have gotten out of the habit of doing or maybe they've just, you know, sort of like become a little more removed from those things. But I definitely think just in my own reporting about science, I often find that a lot of the stories people respond to most strongly have to do with things that they learned as children or that they were encountering in school for the first time. Because for a lot of people, that's like their science experience, you know, mucking around in the woods as a kid or, or you know, playing in, in science class. And, you know, that's why, for example, people got so upset when astronomers booted Pluto out of the Planet Club. I mean, people had to memorize Pluto. We have an emotional connection to Pluto. Like, people don't want to see Pluto go because it's like a little piece of their childhood, and it's a little piece of, of them. Years ago, I was a psychology major at Berkeley, and there's a behavior that kids have much more than adults. And when they take things apart, in essence, breaking them down or breaking them, period, like a toy, um, it's not uh, an evil or a mean-spirited thing. It's It's the opposite of construct, which would be to destruct. In this case, how does this thing work? So they're little scientists, I think, when they're when they're playing and, and learning. Absolutely. They'll like pick up some dead thing and want to look at it. I remember my daughter wanted to buy a fish at the market so she could dissect it. She was like two years old and she was like walking around clutching this dead sardine and asking me all of these questions like, can it sleep with me tonight? Like, can it love me? Like, how do you answer a question like that? Can a dead sardine love you? You know, um, so they're just they're completely free of any preconceptions about the world. And I find it really um, admirable. But also really challenging. You know, you don't want to lie to them. You know, you don't you don't want to, um, you know, just sort of like lead them to despair. But at the same time, like the world can be a pretty harsh place. And I think that, you know, as a parent, like, how do you talk to your kid about nuclear war? You know what I mean? Like, my kids found out about that by reading a Dr. Seuss book, which they thought was like a joke. And, and, and I was like, reading this and thinking to my horror that actually, there really are weapons that can destroy the whole world. And like, some of them are kind of pointing at Washington, D.C., where we live. Like, at what point do children learn that? You have to tell them and, and kind of help them through that. And and sort of pretend as an adult that you're okay with all this and this is normal to live like this, even though, I don't know, speaking for myself personally, all the big questions continue to sort of rattle around in me. Of course. A quote early in the book uh, really caught my uh, attention by B Victor Hugo. Science says the first word on everything and the last word on nothing. It reminded me of maybe uh, the source of the reluctance for a lot of uh, adults in our country, sadly, to embrace science or to value science. And maybe it's because at the end of the day, there's always in the scientific world some uncertainty and some people that makes them uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, science can tell you a lot about the how, but it's not so great with the why. Do you know what I mean? Um, and to a certain extent, people have to make meaning for themselves and to decide, you know, how 
how their life is going to fit into the universe and what what sense they're going to make of it. And so uh, that said, I do think people have actually a a healthy respect for science. You know, at least when I talk to most people, there is still a great deal of respect for the scientific enterprise and and for logical problem solving. But the world is complicated and it's messy and science is a human process, too. Um, You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting sort of emotion and rivalries and uh, sort of randomness that happens in science, just like in everything else that humans do. One of the words I found uh, early in the book, which I I don't know if I can pronounce it, uniformitarianism, um, is that similar to uh, the grand unified theory or, or what I call gut? the similarities between the macro and the micro worlds? Yeah, uniformitarianism (laughs) is quite a mouthful. It's just the idea that the physical processes that have happened in the universe uh, are are constant and they happen everywhere in the universe and they have through all time and they will in the future. And this was a pretty radical idea back when, you know, scientists believed in the biblical story of creation. Um, Just this idea that that you could go to Mars and find, you know, the same geological processes happening um, that happened on the Earth. And so, you know, I do think that scientists um, look for connections. They look for um, a story and a, and a sort of like a, a sense of, of um, unity in, in the universe. And that's definitely something that scientists find appealing. They find it actually quite beautiful. To me, there's an element of certainly of mystery, if not spirituality, with science as well, because some basic building blocks of our world are not precise. And, and by that, I mean geometry of a circle has the number pi involved, and uh, pi is an infinite number. In other words, it's not two and two is four, but it pretty rapidly goes off into who knows where, another dimension perhaps. Have you found that in some of your research? I mean, I definitely think that people love that, though. Like, you might think that people would be disconcerted by that, but people love pie. I mean, there's even, like, pie day, you know, which is, like, March 14th, and people, you know, wear pie on T-shirts, and they memorize all the digits. And, you know, uh, there is something about science that really captures people's imaginations, and they, they have actually an emotional response to it. And so, you know, I think there is this tendency to see, you know, science and scientific research as the realm of, um, you know, logical, like abstract thinking that is like not emotional. But to me, it's all wrapped up with philosophical thinkings about the world and the universe and people's own personal experiences as well. As we wind up here, uh, Nell, what would be some things that you would want people who hear this interview, uh, what would you want them to remember or take away uh, something new, something interesting? What would be a salient point or two? I guess the main thing is just that the history of science um, isn't some distant, abstract thing that doesn't relate to you. That, in fact, you know, many of the things that people have looked into and are still investigating can touch on some of the most intimate facets of our lives. You know, whether they're conversations we have with our kids or, you know, experiences we have growing up or, you know, things we see or read about and think about. And in this book, I tried to give a lot of background into some of that told with a personal narrative. But I also hope people who read it might feel like um, they had some companionship, that they had a a fellow traveler with them for a little while to think about some of these questions and and how putting them in the perspective of science can give you some new insights. That's a wonderful thought. I I was just talking with some of the other staff that are trying to get you out here maybe for an author tour. I would love to see you. That would be so fun. I am Brian Reynolds for KCBX, Public Radio for the Central Coast. Today we were joined by Nell Greenfield-Boyce, science correspondent for NPR, 
talking about her new book, Transit and Strange Notes on the Science of Life. Thank you, Nell. Thank you. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Carol Tangerman. Up next, Playing with Food. I'm Father Ian Dellinger, and I'm Playing with Food. Olives are a delicious snack, and they come in so many varieties. With so many olive trees around the Central Coast, particularly in public areas, one might be tempted to just grab a few off the tree and nosh on them in the raw, pure form. Don't try that, though. Olives are inedible straight off the tree, but I'm sure a few of you learned that the hard way. I learned the correct way to prepare olives for eating when I visited Craig McKella at the Santa Barbara Olive Company in his groves overlooking El Capitan State Beach. So I'll name the varieties. Down below we had Frontoyos and Manzanillos and Kalamatas. I have 50 Kalamatas. Up here we have Missions, Manzanillos again, Cevolanos, Itranas, Arbequinas, and Frontoyos. We don't fertilize, we don't irrigate. Olive trees don't need irrigation on the central coast, but they do when they're babies. So these things that you see here that are giant trees were put in as little tiny, what we call whips. And a whip is like one stick and has a little tiny bit of green on it. And it's about 20 to 30 inches tall. It's in a one gallon bucket. So every tree on this property at one time, 25 years ago, was a little whip and has now become a completely fully mature producing tree. The first six or seven years, we irrigated. And if you look closely, you'll see some old drip system. We sort of just pull it out when tractors get stuck in it or the quads or something. It's mostly all gone now because we live on annual rainfall. But that can be a big problem when we're in a drought. Luckily, as you know, this year was not a drought year. And that means that we have a real good fruit set. We should have a a fairly decent crop this year. The interesting thing about olives is that different fruit, these are Cevolanos to my left, they make great table olives, and those are Manzanillos to the right, they make great table olives. But the Manzanillos have a much higher oil content than these Cevolanos, but the Cevolanos make a better tasting oil. Ergo the problem there with economics. Do you want to make olive oil out of uh, these beautiful large table olives? Wait until they go kind of reddish black. That's when we pick them for oil. Or do you want to pick them green and big and large and make them table olives? So what I do is I go through and have a crew get them in when they're big and giant, and then I will cure those in salt and water. After that is done, after we go through and do that harvest of green, we're talking about green. And remember, all olives are green, and all olives turn black, and all olives fall off the tree. So what we do is we pick during the green, red, black set. So we want to get about 50% red and black and that's going to become olive oil. But also you take the plump black olives from that pick, the ones that are big and plump and hard and they haven't started to shrivel yet and they're not red, they're solid black. And those are the olives that you put in salt only in a bin or a bucket or you know whatever vessel and they're cured only in rock salt and those big plump olives leach out the bitter sugar which all olives in California are not edible from the tree because there's something inside that has not turned from bitter to edible sugar called glycoside. An olive never learned 
to go into edible sugar, even when they're black. The sugar is still not edible. So you have to pull the bitterness out, the bitter sugar. It's sugar, but it's bitter sugar. So in order to do that, there are many ways to cure olives. The big giant companies that are trying to do massive amounts quickly use lye. So they put the olives down in a lye bath for about 24 hours, and then they rinse that lye bath out, and then they use a salt water brine, and that can accelerate pretty quickly. You might get those done in four to six weeks because you cut them with lye for 24 hours, and that pulled out most of the bitter sugars quickly. And then you slowly leach out the residual bitter sugars and any lye that's left in by changing the uh, saltwater brine. And that's kind of a commercial, you might say, uh, method. It's also the black canned olive industry in California's method. We use only water and salt to cure green table olives or salt only to cure black olives. And our black olives are cured dry, so salt and olives, the bitterness is leached out, and then after about five weeks, it's the fastest cure for table olives, you take those olives out, you rinse them with a colander, or, you know, something you can strain the salt off, you rinse them in hot water, warm water, and scrub them, so all the bitterness that's left on the wrinkles on the olive, because they're now shriveled up, you wash them away, and then you put them out in the sun, and it only takes a couple of hours. They dry up, and they shrivel like a prune. You take those shriveled up, dried, cleaned olives, put them back into a vessel like a five or 50 gallon barrel in our case, but if you're doing it at home, you know, you use a, just a gallon or a five gallon bucket. And then you drizzle olive oil over the top of the dried olives and put a lid on it and shake them vigorously, and they will rehydrate or kind of plump up a little bit. And then that's it. That, that is a finished product that lasts 18 to 24 months without refrigeration. We recommend you refrigerate them, but you don't have to refrigerate a black salt-cured sun-dried olive. The oil will coagulate and look kind of funny in the refrigerator. It'll look kind of like wax almost. And then you have to put them out on the counter and let that wax sort of melt back out. That's olive oil is what it is, and it's hardening. You let it melt back to room temperature, and then you eat them. Green olives, on the other hand, require refrigeration after they're open. So immediately after opening a green olive that's cured in our style, which is a natural, old-world style, salt and water only, they don't have preservatives in them added. They make their own lactic acid because the sugar and the salt and the water change the bitter sugars into lactic acid, a certain degree. Lactic acid, a natural process, preserves the olives. However, without adding any other preservative, that once you open them and you eat them, that you seal them back up and put them in the refrigerator. And that's so that they don't develop a waxy material called pellicle, which will build up from peroxidation. It'll oxidize and this little wax will rise to the top of the jar and it freaks a lot of people out, but it's not poison, it's not gonna hurt you. Is it that little film? It's a film. Get, yeah, okay, I get that. In Europe, people eat the wax as if it's part of the product. You know, they leave table olives out on a table all day long in Spain and Italy and France and all over here, Greece, and uh, there's wax on them, you know, white pellicle. And you see them, and they're just eating them. They don't care. It's, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with it. It's not poisonous. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Father Ian in an olive grove in Galita. I just learned how to salt cure black olives. Greg from the Santa Barbara Olive Company is now going to teach me how to cure green olives. 
The style that we use, salt and water, is called Sicilian style. The description that I gave you with lye is called Spanish style. It doesn't mean it's from Spain. It's just the name of the curing style. Spanish style is lye. Sicilian style is salt and water. And then salt cured is just salt cured. A lot of people mistakenly call them oil cured. And they're not oil cured. They're not cured in oil. No, they're cured in rock salt. And then they're hydrated with oil. You don't cure anything in oil. You can cure olives in plain water. It takes a really long time, but you can. And some people put them in bags, burlap bags, and just hang them in the backyard and let them naturally leach out the glycosides until they feel that they're not bitter enough. They're going to be bitter still. People like to do a very natural cure in burlap. It takes months. You can actually eat those olives. They'll be bitter. The only way to make an olive not bitter is to spend the time and our curing takes about six months in brine. We don't change the water. We just increase the amount of salt. When you're doing commercial like we are, the olives rumble inside of the warehouse. If you go in there the first two or three weeks, they're moving, they're bubbling, and they're fermenting. There's a bunghole at the top of every barrel, and you loosen that a little bit so that they gas off. You don't want them to build up pressure and explode. You could go inside of the room, be quiet, and you would hear a audible rumble. The black olives are very quiet, of course, when they're in salt. There's no noise there. After the rumble stops, this is when you start increasing the salt. Also acts as a holding pattern for that fruit, which can then keep it stable for years. You take it out when you're ready to put it in a jar or pack it or eat it, and you reduce the salt. We're talking about now putting them in jars that we sell that go on the store shelf. And then we add organic vinegar to kill off the bacteria that might be in the jar because we don't use chemicals. There's natural lactic acid, vinegar, salt, and water, and olives. You wanna show me where this is done? Yeah. <laughs> the barrel room that we're entering is a 3,000 square foot insulated tile roof building. So, what you're looking at are all of the vessels that we will use this year. These are recycled, these barrels right here. These are the barrels that you put the olives in. Where, where does the this all happen? The gray barrels. The gray barrels. That have the two-inch bung at the top and are threaded. Those are olive barrels. Okay. The fruit goes in along with well water and salt. So we just use Himalayan salt or sea salt. And that's the beginning stage of a Sicilian cure, a natural cure, a natural way of curing fruit without using chemicals. Some people use solvents, heat, lye to speed the process up, like the canneries in California. There's two canneries in California. They accelerate the ripening of their fruit by running air through it. They take green fruit and then they run oxygen, which basically starts to deteriorate the fruit. It's like putting it outside and letting it begin to rot. And it turns kind of brown, but at some stage of that turning it from a green to a brown olive, they throw in ferrous gluconate. The chemical reaction of ferrous gluconate to the olive turns them immediately black and shiny. And the meat, if you notice, in the canned olive is gray. Then those olives are pitted, sliced and pitted. Then they're put into metal cans and put into a retort oven. The oven is extremely hot, a few hundred degrees, and it cooks any bacteria or live organisms out 
of the canned olives, so now it's basically a dead piece of fruit that's labeled and then sold in the stores. Before we continue with how to cure olives at home, there is one more bit of the industrial table olive industry that I want to share with you. It's a bit unsavory, so I would rather you hear it now than leave a bad taste in your mouth literally at the end of the show. Most people don't realize that a pimento-stuffed olive in the store, and we're talking about 99% of every pimento olive you see on every shelf in every store, is a sodium alginate squirt of paste. There's a machine in Europe. We don't have a machine here that I'm aware of because nobody does what, what I'm about to tell you. They do it in Europe. A paste is made, a gel. It's made in sodium alginate, red color, and a little bit of flavoring. People say, oh, right, you know, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, buy a jar of pimento stuffed olives from any market that does not designate on the label that it is a real pimento. Take that jar home that you bought of pimento stuffed olives from the store and squeeze the pimento out on a plate. Squeeze six of them and then tell yourself, are those six pieces exactly the same length, height, square, color? Are they kind of clear, a little bit of a funny translucent to them? And then bite into them and realize that what you're eating is a paste of dye and color and sodium alginate. And then you go, oh my gosh, that is not a pimento. <laughs> not, it's red and it's, you know, it kind of has a little bit of a flavor to it, but it's actually called an angel machine. It's made in Spain. The angel machine can take the orientation of the fruit so that the hole is pointing towards the squirt. And in a nanosecond, it squirts and cuts a little tiny piece of pimento and shoots it into the olive. And that's how 99% of all pimento stuffed olives are made in our world. Not just in Spain, but in Greece and everywhere, all over the world, Morocco and Portugal and France. And everybody uses the angel machine and everybody uses a squirt of sodium alginate. Now back to the proper way to cure olives. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Father Ian with Craig from the Santa Barbara Olive Company. He has taught me how to cure both black and green olives for snacking on. Now we're doing a bit of a tour. The green ones are done here in these barrels. How are the black ones done? Where are they done? We'll walk around. I'll show you the harvest bins. So we take a white plastic food grade harvest bin and then we fill it full of black olives and salt. Cover the top with a large cheesecloth. We wrap it with a band. And it just sits there? Actually, we move it around so that the salt doesn't crystallize. The barrels will all come out of here. They get rinsed. And these are full of olives. This is a 1,000 pounds. So the harvesters use these. And we either dump these into the press or we dump them into the barrels. This is where it's done. Or we take two or three of these and make black olives. How long do the black olives sit in the salt? Four to five weeks. Just like at home. I teach people to do this at home all the time. So you would do the same thing that I'm talking to you commercially about, but you would just do it in like a five-gallon food-grade bucket. So you just drill holes in the bottom of them, so you make them like a colander like this. And the only reason you want to drill holes is just in case too much of the bitter purple glycoside wants to escape. Well, you don't want it to sit in the bottom and pool up. So drill holes in the bottom of the five-gallon bucket and allow it to leach out if it wants to. It doesn't always, but sometimes you'll find it leaching out. And then when we're all done... We simply take it by hand, put it into you know large commercial colanders, rinse them underwater, scrub them, lay them right out here in the sun on a plastic sheet. It takes an hour or two. Somebody's here at all times. We don't want birds and we don't want animals, you know, because we have coyotes and bobcats and mountain lions and skunks and squirrels and an abundance of rodents and things of that nature. 
So there's somebody raking and observing the whole time. And then when they make the decision that they're dry, just pick up the sheets with a couple of people and pour them right into the bucket. Then pour olive oil over the top, put them down and roll them. And then they'll take about you know, a couple of hours and they plump back up. And that's what you see in the jar. That's our olives that are in the jar. Can you salt cure green olives? Yeah, sure you can. You know, it's a little bit different result. They will be shrivelly, but yes, of course you can do that. You can water cure. You can dry cure, with, you know, with nothing. I was excited to try curing my own olives. When the olives were ripe at Thanksgiving, I contacted Tom Bear, who manages the olive groves for Solana Farms in Santa Margarita. I got a little less than a gallon of black olives from the trees. A small portion of them were sunburned, which I only noticed when I was prepping them. I bought a bunch of table salt and wasn't sure whether iodized salt made a difference. In the end, I got iodized salt because it's what was available at the discount supermarket and the online discussion about iodized versus non-iodized was inconclusive. I lined a plastic colander with a thin cloth and then layered the olives with salt. I completely covered the top with a dome of salt. The colander was in a bowl and I left it in the garage for a couple of weeks. The sunburned olives were in a smaller, separate setup. After about three weeks, I checked them. They were not ready, and I replaced the salt, not realizing that I didn't have to. At the end of five weeks, I tried a couple of olives. They had a nice texture to the flesh, and they were not bitter. They were ready, and I was successful. After curing, I couldn't tell that the sunburned ones were blemished, and I mixed them in with the rest. I feel accomplished. Olives are a delicious snack, and they come in so many varieties. Knowing how easy it is to make my own, I might make this a regular thing. If you want to try curing your own olives, remember to get your olives from someone who manages their orchard so you don't have any pests. Other than that, enjoy the bounty of the Central Coast. I'm Father Ian, and I'm playing with food. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Carol Tangerman. Up next, Grammy-nominated jazz and R&B musician and composer Patrice Russian joins longtime KCBX music host Fred Friedman. She's composed a multi-genre piece that will be performed by the Slow Symphony at their concert on February 3rd. First, Patrice, thanks for taking the time to speak with me. I'm very excited to be able to talk with you today. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me to speak with you. The San Luis Obispo Symphony is going to be playing your composition, Mine Eyes Have Seen the Glory, and it's going to be at their concert at the Performing Arts Center at Cal Poly Mm -hmm. on February 3rd. But before we talk about that, I'd like to go back to the beginning a little bit, your beginning, uh, not mine, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you got started in music. Well, music was always a part of uh, my family's household, Uh, you know, listening to the radio all the time. My parents collected albums. They belonged to a record club, so I heard music around the house all the time. Uh When I was in nursery school, there was a teacher there that realized, I think, that during those activities that included any kind of movement to music or singing or anything like that, that I would take particular interest. She told my parents about it and that there was a program at that time at the University of Southern California that was actually a graduate course that was designed for the grads to observe small children, and develop certain ideas about how they were all hearing, seemingly innately responding to music. So 
So I was part of this, and it was one of those kinds of things that couldn't continue, and I stayed in that and took piano lessons starting at five. So I had that going on as far as my own music activities, plus what was happening, you know, listening to music and hearing music all the time at home and in church. So I can't really remember a time when there wasn't music in my life in one form or another, and it's just has continued from there and taken on a lot of different styles and iterations, I think just based upon the fact that the categories of music were never laid out for me as being, you know, you do this this way and this this way and this this way. It's all about communication and the ability to use the right language authentically, and all of that came from just all of those experiences as a kid. You have such a a varied background. You started recording, I think, in the early 70s, and I think your first recordings were on the Prestige label, which is such an iconic jazz label, Miles Davis, Coltrane, and uh, all of that. Who are some of the artists that recorded with you when you started out on Prestige? Well, the whole idea of that came from an appearance that my high school band made at one of the band competitions at the Monterey Jazz Festival. And our band didn't win, but there was a combo division, and the combo that I led won. So we appeared at the festival on the big show, and it was from there that, you know, Prestige became interested in, in signing me. And I ran from, from the record deals. I didn't really want to do that. I was getting ready to go to college, and I didn't really see myself ready for that. But I did need money to go to school, <laughs> so their their deal seemed to be pretty uh, easy and manageable, and because it was based in the Bay Area, you know, not far from L.A., I felt like, you know, I had a certain kind of understanding of of what was going on. It wouldn't interfere with anything. It was the practice back then that a new artist, they would try to pair you with a more established artist in order to get garner a little bit of interest on the new artist. They asked Joe Henderson to to be on my first album, which was awesome because I had been a big fan of his for a long time. Uh, I also, during that time, uh, recorded with Flora Perrine, uh, Sonny Rollins, Stanley Turrentine. Wow. So there were quite a few people that were, you know, that I I was a guest on their records after uh, they guessed it on mine. That's amazing, really, to be at such a young age and be recording with those icons of, of, of jazz. Yeah, it was pretty uh, intense for me because these are people that I really, of course, admired their music and looked up to. And at the same time, they made me feel very welcome. I wasn't, at first, you know, you get that feeling of, oh, man, what am I doing in the same space? But as the music is the great equalizer, and I think that the sincerity and the work that had gone into trying to be someone who could represent that music and with a certain integrity and dignity, I think that they got that. So what I didn't know, they would show me. Nice. And what, I, and what I knew, they would applaud. And then a few years after that, you kind of moved in an altogether different direction. You switched over to Electra Records and started recording, uh, again, in an altogether different style. Yeah, you know, it doesn't seem to most people that it was as organic as it was, because they want to always kind of put everything in a category and in a box. But my last album for Prestige, looking back now, the mix of styles came from me being from a background of a mix of styles. I was just being me. Uh-huh. I mean, at that time, you know, I was out of high school, out of, in college. There's the music that I, me and my peers listened to and danced to. And 
both things can be true, that you can come from a particular tradition and still be able to celebrate how that tradition has informed other things. So I was the same person who could play Bach, weep at James Brown, or Brahms. You know what I mean? Yeah. So for me, it doesn't feel like the distance is that far. I get it, you know, I get it from the standpoint of what it looks like, you know, to somebody else. But for me... It was just, okay, what do you need? And they said, we're trying to find artists that have a certain aspect of the jazz uh, vocabulary, but who value commercial sensibilities and can bridge that without compromising either. I was like, "Uh uh-oh, that sounds really cool. Uh, That's what uh, the Electra years were like, and it, it gave me an opportunity to kind of explore, you know, the songwriting aspect. Uh, the biggest thing was that I was allowed to arrange the music on the album because that was a part of my desire that nobody really knew at the time. Now I'd like to move ahead and talk about the composition that the San Luis Obispo Symphony is going to be playing on February 3rd. Mine Eyes Have Seen the Glory is the title of it. And can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, the piece was actually a commissioned work by the Detroit Symphony for their youth symphony. And typically, I think annually, the Detroit Symphony uh, would play a special uh, Martin Luther King concert because Detroit was one of the hubs of the civil rights movements. In fact, there's a famous picture where they're walking right in front of Symphony Hall, you know, marching. And that particular year, the Detroit Symphony proper was going to be on tour. So they assigned the youth orchestra to do the annual concert, to play the annual concert. And I was commissioned to write a piece for them, one that did not require, you know, an outside soloist or anything like that. It was specifically for the orchestra. And this is a big orchestra. It was like 150, you know, kids between like 13 and 20. So that was my assignment. And what I realized as I was trying to put the piece together, you know, I was a kid during that part of the Civil Rights Movement. But there were certain aspects of Martin Luther King that I thought could be easily portrayed in the music in such a way that it would give these benchmarks to the part of his life that was the most impactful initially for me as a kid. And so the first movement speaks to his beginnings in the church and his oratory skills and the ability to reach people. His voice for me was almost like singing. It was a song in the way that his delivery was. And uh, the second movement speaks to the uh, time that he spent in jail. And the letters of the Birmingham jail are a famous group of letters that were written, and each one had something to say about whether or not he was doing the right thing. And the idea of the push and pull between having to stand in your truth, knowing that other people are affected and sometimes very negatively by the fact that your stance is ultimately going to move things along, but at a great price. And then the last movement is called Freedom is Not Free, and it speaks to the idea of the ultimate sacrifice that one would make in that decision to move forward. So um, that's what the piece is, and uh, it was a, it was wonderful writing for the young people. You know, I didn't I didn't write down to them or anything else, and so the piece, you know, continues to hold up and. I'm very excited about Samuel Obispo playing it because it's another opportunity to be able to hear an interpretation, 
you know, with adults. These were kids that played it the very first time, and their perception and the people that are going to be playing it will have a different understanding. And especially with uh, Maestro Sewell, they'll bring a beautiful interpretation, a knowledgeable interpretation. I'm excited to hear it, too. Is there a recording of it at all? Actually, the, the Wisconsin Chamber Orchestra just recorded it a few months ago, and I think that recording, you know, Andrew Sewell is the conductor of right. that. And that recording, I believe, comes out in a couple of months. So that will become the standard bearer, so to speak. How did you and Andrew kind of hook up and get together? We have a mutual friend in a composer named William Banfield. Bill Banfield appeared here, and he actually stayed with me. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. Well, Go. Bill Banfield and I have been friends for a very, very long time. He had a wonderful residency at the Wisconsin Chamber Orchestra. And when the idea came up for one of the concerts that he was going to do, that the thematic idea of that concert allowed for there to be the introduction of other composers, living composers, and in particular composers of color, he offered that I might be a good candidate for them to consider knowing more about. And that's what happened. And, of course hit it off well with Andrew. Um, he's done a tremendous job in being a champion for the music. Andrew's been doing such a great job as musical director and conductor of the San Luis Obispo Symphony and, and really doing some creative programming. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's worked out really, really well here. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat today, Patrice. I hope I get a chance to meet you when you're here at the symphony and again that's saturday february 3rd at the cal poly performing arts center tickets are available at slowsymphony.org and anything else you would like to say yes i would like to say thank you to all the people in advance who are going to come out and those of you who don't know i'm also going to do i think a pre or post or maybe both pre and post concert talk i mentioned that because it is a beautiful way to be able to to talk about the piece in advance and hopefully heighten the experience. But the feedback that goes to a composer as far as what the communication has been to the audience afterwards is extremely valuable, very, very rare, a new idea, right? And something that allows for people who really love music and art to be able to in some way participate in what the composer will do next. So I invite you all to come to either the pre- or post-concert, but certainly to uh, enjoy the concert. Thanks for taking the time, Patrice. Thank you, Fred. You've been listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. Gary Eister composed our theme music. A special thanks to all our guests and contributors this week. I'm Carol Tangeman. Join us each Monday from 1 to 2 in the afternoon for more local stories. You can head to our website to learn more about what you heard today or to listen to past segments, kcbx.org.